Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the Columbia Space Shuttle disaster from 2003. I hope you find this an interesting topic. I think everything related to space is so interesting and equally quite terrifying. So it's an interesting topic to cover. I, I think the people that go into space are just so brave and how they how they manage to do it is, is crazy. So it's, it's really sad when it goes wrong and it's really sad when it is potentially something that's preventable. But let's... Let's dig into it. Kalpana Chawla was the first woman of Indian origin to go into space as part of the US space program. Her first mission was in 1997 as a primary robotic arm operator. In 2003, she had recently been married and was ready to start her second mission to space as part of STS-107. So I knew that the space program existed, obviously, to this point, but I never really understood it in a lot of detail and I I guess maybe it's just me being silly and obviously I was quite young when these things happened but I didn't really understand the extent of it and really what worked within it so I thought we would just talk a little bit about the space program how it worked first of all and then we'll dig into what happened with the Columbia. The US started the space shuttle program in 1972 and it's very obvious from its name the space shuttle but I never really clicked that it was something that kept, that returned to and from Earth. I think I did know that in somewhere in my brain, but I just kind of never put it together until I'd been looking into this this type of information. But yeah, obviously they took off, did missions in space, and then returned on the same aircraft. The space shuttle itself was made, made up of different parts, which will become important later on. So it was made up of the, the kind of the main body, which is called the orbiter. And that's exactly what you are, what you think about when you think of space shuttles. So it's the bit that kind of looks like a plane. And that's the bit where the crew, um, the crew live and where they uh, control the ship from and where they do all of their experiments. Alongside that, there is two solid rocket boosters. And these help to propel the, the shuttle from Earth. And then a fuel tank, which holds the fuel and fuels those solid rocket boosters so that the, the sh- ship can take off and escape Earth's orbit. The When it takes off, the boosters actually fall off pretty early on and they actually fall into the sea just off um, Florida. And NASA sends uh, a boat to go and pick them up, which I thought was very handy, but I guess they are very expensive. Um, and then the fuel tank basically disintegrates um, in, in the atmosphere so that that bit doesn't get reused. The orbiter then goes ahead, does all of its mission, you know, spends time up in space and then it returns, glides back to Earth and lands safely, hopefully. So there were five shuttles built in total throughout the program and these were Challenger, Discovery, Atlantis and Endeavour along with Columbia. Uh, they did build one called Enterprise as well, but it never flew. It was just used for training missions. But the first ship was Columbia. It was built in California and delivered in 1979. And prior to the launch in 2003, the ship had successfully completed 27 missions to space. 
The missions themselves were usually to conduct experiments and to uh, further our understanding about space and and what what we could use it for and the impact of of not having gravity on different things. It was also used for different things. So sometimes they would take up equipment to the International Space Station. Sometimes they would take satellites up and launch the satellites whilst they were up there. Uh, but, uh, you know, a variety of things that they did up there. And overall, the space shuttle program was very, very successful. So they did complete 135 missions, which I never really understood uh, the extent of how many they actually did. But yeah, 135 missions were conducted. So the main disaster that had happened prior to the Columbia, which we're going to talk about, uh, was the Challenger shuttle explosion, which happened in 1986. And that happened on takeoff. So the Challenger basically disintegrated on on takeoff uh, 73 seconds into flight. And that was due to a problem with the O-ring, which was an issue that NASA were actually aware of at the time. And that will become an important thing to know as we as we continue talking As a side note, um, there is an excellent Challenger documentary on Netflix at the moment. I highly recommend it if you're interested in space and it uh, goes into all of that detail. And I watched that relatively recently. So if I start calling the Columbia the Challenger, that's why. But we're on the Columbia today. And basically, since the Challenger, so since the Challenger in 1986, uh, the remaining flights all happened without any kind of major incident up until 2003. February 1st, 2003, the Columbia was ready for its 28th mission. Um, And the mission itself was actually meant to take off almost a year before it actually ended up happening. It had a lot of problems and a lot of errors. So there was a problem, first of all, with with some scheduling. They then found a problem with some cracking panels that they had to fix. um, And basically, it took a really long time for this trip to actually happen so the astronauts were all very anticipatory and and really you know hoping that it would happen pretty soon but when it finally took off the mission would have a crew of seven so kalpana who i've already mentioned then we also had mission commander rick husband who was the main chief uh the pilot which was william mccool and then there were crew members michael anderson ilan ramon david brown and laurel clark So I did a bit of reading about the selection and the training that the team would have had to have done by this point. So some of them, this was their first flight, some of them had been up previously like Kalpana had. But basically in order to become an astronaut, you have to meet some criteria, which I thought was quite fascinating. So you have to be a US citizen. So unfortunately, I'm out. Uh, you have to have a master's in a, in a STEM subject. So a master's in physics or engineering or um, anything STEM. Or you, or you can be a doctor or a pilot. So it just depends where your experience is. You have to have done at least two years uh, experience um, in whatever field you have done prior to this. Then you have to be able to succeed in a NASA physical and you have to do a kind of a series of tests. So there's a big test around swimming, which at first I thought was a bit weird, but I guess it makes sense if you um, train a lot within pools to kind of imitate no gravity. Eyesight, blood pressure. And then they also, you have to be between 5'2 and 6'3 in terms of height, I'm guessing, because the space shuttle doesn't ex- you know, expand or, or shrink if you're any bigger or smaller. So you have to meet all of those criteria just to be um, considered and selected. And, the you know, it's very competitive, obviously, to get in there. So they ran uh, another recruitment mission in 2016 and they received over 20,000 applications. So to get to the point where they are now, where, you know, they're about to go into space, it's been a really long journey to get there. 
So it generally takes them about two years once they've been selected. So they'll be selected, then they will have to go through two years of training. And that basically teaches them everything about the shuttle. So how how to run the shuttle, how to take off, how to land, how to keep it going and all the different kind of scenarios if something does go wrong and you know, NASA is very proceduralized. So the whole point of, of that is that, that it then leaves less room for error. So they go through a lot of training around that. They also, if they if it is a mission that's going to the ISS, they have to learn everything they want to do about the ISS. Uh, they have to, they practice on like a mock-up of the shuttle and they do experiments and practice in microgravity to make sure that they're ready to maneuver once they do get up to space. And then the team is split based on what they're doing in space. So pilots learn a lot more about flying the shuttle. The mission specialists learn things around things like the experiments or the spacewalks that they're going to conduct. They also all have to learn Russian, which I thought was interesting. They learn Russian so that they can talk to the Russian mission control as well, whilst they're up there, especially if they're doing anything with the ISS. So onto the day itself now. The initial launch of the Columbia actually went perfectly. So it wasn't like the Challenger where it exploded as soon as it took off. Everything went to plan. So the shuttle took off, the boosters released, and the shuttle safely made it into orbit. And everyone was pretty happy with it. They thought it was a good good success. They'd done the ship had done 27 of these before. It was, you know, it was good to go. It was only when NASA agents were reviewing the footage of the takeoff. So they um, have a lot of cameras and they record the takeoff in a lot of detail so that they can study it afterwards just to learn more and to understand really what happened. And so when they were reviewing that footage of the takeoff, they then actually saw something had gone wrong that couldn't be seen from the naked eye on the actual takeoff itself. The fuel tank, which we talked about earlier, uh, is attached to the rockets and it's attached to the orbiter. And it's surrounded by a a form of foam. So it's a form of insulating foam. And it's there to keep the fuel at the right temperature so that it can be used to help propel the rocket into space and it stops ice forming within that area. On several previous missions to this, it had been noted that some foam had previously shed off from this tank so like big blocks of foam had kind of fallen off and and either just disappeared and disintegrated or occasionally had actually hit the shuttle itself but on on those occasions it it was always very minor always very small bits of foam nothing kind of untoward happened um due to it so they decided that it was just it is what it is you know we'll keep an eye on it type thing but they on this occasion they could see at 81 seconds after takeoff it was a big piece of foam had broken off so it was around a suitcase size pretty pretty large and even though it is foam you know it's moving at such a speed it can create quite a large impact and what that piece of foam had done is that it broke off from the tank and then it hit one of the shuttle's wings so it hit the left wing so time so the shuttle's taken off now time then split here basically so the shuttle continued on 
the the crew on the in the in the cabin continued with their mission they completed all their experiments and they did that all successfully but they didn't up until this point have any knowledge that anything had actually gone wrong or anything had taken place. They hadn't felt any of the impact or, you know, it hadn't come up on any of their senses or, or anything like that. So they were kind of living in ignorance at this point. But on the ground, there was a lot of debate and discussion around what had happened. So the engineers who who worked in this area really wanted to see more. So they wanted to get the astronauts out there, potentially looking at the damage. They wanted to get more footage of the takeoff to see if they could see a bit more around the impact of the damage. They wanted to know, you know, see where exactly it hit so they could start to think about what they could do and whether it would mean anything. And these engineers, they did make three separate requests to management to try and get additional satellite images from the Department of Defense, but that was never taken up. So the the engineers never got any further information about what had happened or, or what the impact it might be. And NASA at this point, like the management were taking a different tact. So they were basically saying, well, if it had hit and if it had caused damage, then what's the use of telling the crew? Because the the crew can't do anything about it at this point. You know, they can't go out there and fix it in any way because they don't have the type of materials that are needed on the on the wing. And they were still very much of the opinion that this was run of the mill. It had happened before. Wasn't going to be a big deal. So what they, instead of, you know, getting more imaging and, and that type of thing, what they did was they instructed some modeling to be done to try and try and model what the impact would mean and what the impact would cause on the wing. So the important bit around the the whole orbiter is that it had lots of thermal protection elements. So when and you'll see this on, you know, on films and stuff, when something re-enters the atmosphere, it tends to get very, very hot. And that's as the as the shuttle was re-entering. So it can get up to thousands and thousands of degrees in terms of heat. And so the whole orbiter needs to be covered in very, you know, good thermal protective equipment and gear. It had on the wing, they had silica tiles, which were were there for that purpose. So these tiles were there to keep the heat out. And then they also had reinforced carbon panels on top of that as well. And generally, you know, up to this point, everyone there had considered that the panels were pretty much impenetrable. They were thinking, this is it. These panels won't ever break. You know, they were the, the last ditch effort there to to keep them together and so before this there was never any modeling or never much consideration for what would happen if these panels did actually get broken or did have a problem with them so the engineers did the modeling that they were going to do and it became quite clear that this was going to cause a lot of damage the the models that they did showed pretty much catastrophic damage and catastrophic impact when the when the rocket came back to earth but again, NASA management downplayed this. The modeling that they had been using was based on ice hitting the um, hitting the rocket. So they basically said, well, the foam wouldn't damage it as much as the ice. So therefore, it's probably still not going to happen. Everything should be fine. We'll just carry on as normal. Because of this, the management decided everything's fine. We're good to have a normal re-entry and we'll just monitor what's going on. Um, on January 23rd, NASA sends an email to the crew informing them. So they, they do tell them that this had happened, that the strike had happened, uh, but they reassured them that they don't think 
anything is anything untoward is going to happen because of that. Now time for re-entry. So on the 1st of February 2003, the Columbia prepared for re-entry and they have a standard checklist that they use to prepare all of the different systems and get themselves ready to, to come back to Earth. Columbia would enter the atmosphere, fly over California and then across to Florida and it would land in Florida as it had done many times previously. And the beginning of the re-entry went correctly. So at 8.50 a.m., the Columbia entered a period of rapid heating as it flew across America. And it was only from 8.58 that there was evidence that something was going wrong. So at 8.58, there was evidence of debris shedding as the shuttle went over Texas. And the sensors which measured the temperature on that wing were lost. And again, we, we didn't really know what that meant. It could have been that the sensors were just malfunctioning. In reality, it was probably because the sensors were so hot that it, it caused them to break. At 8.59, there was the last recording from the crew to control and the last telemetry reading from the shuttle. And the shuttle then continued to disintegrate and it's estimated that the crew module broke up around 9.01 a.m. When NASA couldn't make control with the shuttle and there were reports uh, from the news of, of all of the debris coming down and all of the debris hitting different areas of, of the states, uh, the NASA declared a major incident at that point. They obviously didn't know exactly what happened, but they sent teams across to Texas to, to look at the debris and go to the debris sites and to check and see if there were any survivors. But later that day, NASA declared all of the crew lost. And even from that early point, you know, NASA did acknowledge that this was likely because uh, of the superheated atmospheric gases which entered the shuttle and led to it disintegrating. So let's get into the aftermath because a lot did happen after this. So following the incident, NASA did a really did the biggest land search for evidence which was ever made. It, it covered across three different United US states and they managed to find about 40% of the debris of the shuttle. And even even now, apparently, they're still out there finding, finding bits of debris. The searchers themselves were encouraged to hand in everything they found. So it wasn't just NASA searchers that were out there. A lot of people who had seen it were out there trying to find bits and pieces. And it was very common at the time to find some of the debris on, on eBay or, or people trying to sell it, which, you know, never is a good thing. In the wreckage, NASA recovered a video of the re-entry so the crew were filming themselves when they were going through the re-entry and it showed the interactions in the cockpit as they went through that process and this video was was interesting it showed you know it showed the crew really happy it showed them laughing they were taking pictures out the window of all of the different things they were seeing and it made it very clear that this disaster was not down to human error Every, all of the team did pretty much everything that they should have done within the shuttle itself. So all shuttle launches were suspended from this point because they didn't know, had an idea of, of what had happened, but they didn't know exactly what had happened. So all of them were uh, suspended until the investigation was completed and none flew then until 2005. So there were a couple years there where, where nothing was flown. They did consider what 
else could have caused this so they did investigate into other possible issues um they even considered terrorism at one point because of the uh, climate in in america at the time but eventually the phone was settled on and the phone was confirmed to be the cause of the issue and initially the foam failure they blamed on human error so they blamed it on the manufacturers of the foam and of the fuel tank and they said that it was their fault you know it wasn't implemented correctly but they did some thermal imaging on the foam and it was only a couple of years later they discovered that actually when the foam got very hot and then got very cold as a result of the rocket taking off all of the heat all of the flames coming out and then getting very cold as it enters the the higher parts of the atmosphere that was causing the foam itself to crack because it was getting such rapid expansion and then and then contraction and and it was that cracking that then caused bits of it to fall off so actually it wasn't human error it wasn't you know it wasn't a problem with the foam itself and how it was put together it was a problem with the thermal imaging that no one had picked up they continued to investigate the the disaster and they released a, an interesting paper in 2008 where they did an independent investigation into the survivability aspects for the crew um, and when when they would have died in the in the process of of the disintegration and it concluded that there were four lethal events that happened in the following order and they don't know when the crew would have died in this this example. They have a fair idea, but this helps to understand what could have happened. So the first or the first thing that could have potentially killed them was depressurization. High altitudes, we talked about this in K2, high altitudes less oxygen, especially at the, the levels that they are talking about. There's barely anything up there. So this means that the cabin that they're in is pressurized so there's there's oxygen and pressure being put into the cabin itself and that keeps the oxygen levels like if you're on the ground same as if you're on an airplane right uh, and you you know you get the little thing with like if if it loses pressure you've got to put your mask on it's the same concept their 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 cabin was pressurized to to allow them to breathe and to continue on and so when the shuttle was breached, this meant that it's very likely the pressure dropped so quickly. And because it was so high, this loss of pressure basically would have made them unconscious very, very quickly. And then there was no oxygen to breathe. So they would fall unconscious and then not be able to breathe. So it's likely that that was the cause of the um, of the crew's deaths, but there were further considerations. So there was then G-forces on the body. So as the shuttle began to disintegrate and it became out of control, it's likely that the G-force would have caused the crew to be damaged by this, but the, the actual safety equipment. And this led to some improvements of safety equipment later on. But for example, they were being thrown about so much that the seatbelts weren't working particularly well. They were kind of being flung flung about. They were potentially hitting their heads against their own helmets. And they could see this from analysing the bodies after they had found them. And so this, again, potentially something that could have killed them very quickly. The third thing that was then considered was the high speed and high altitude so very similar to what we already talked about but it was uh, they were still very high so they had an area with no oxygen and then they were because they were so high it was very very cold and then as the shuttle disintegrated that was very very hot so they've got this exposure to different things that basically you know any one of them potentially could have killed them 
And then finally, obviously, and sad, the saddest thing is, is obviously they, they would have hit the ground eventually. Uh, it's generally agreed that the crew would have died at the very first point that we talked about, the depressure, but anything falling from that height will very much, very likely die when hitting the ground. And that that was a very important activity for them to undertake, to understand, you know, when when they could have died, what what might have happened, and then use that information to try and and make it better and try and improve things. So let's get on to what we learned. So the key thing that happened after this incident was the redesign of the foam. So once they knew about that, um, the contraction and the expansion of the foam, uh, they redesigned it so that it would hopefully never happen again. And it did not happen again in all of the future uh, shuttle launches. Alongside that independent investigation, there was an investigation of the incident and it was very critical of the culture at NASA, which led this to happen. So the fact that there had been multiple foam strikes before this, but there had never really been anything about it was one of the main ones. They almost just, it became one of those things that goes wrong all the time. And so because it goes wrong all the time, you just accept it as a normal event. But on this occasion, it's one of those things that went so wrong, it then caused a catastrophe. So it was around the culture of NASA of, of accepting these things that were wrong and therefore not doing anything about them. Alongside this this cultural impact, it also talked a lot about how at the time the funding for NASA was very much around, you know, the number of shuttles that they used, the speed, how often they were taking off, how often they were flying, and they were very pressured to take off on time and to get the shuttles up and back on the schedule that they promised that they would. And this meant it had a cultural impact around their attitude to risk and and having that pressure put on them meant that they may have been more likely to take those risks. And so these, the assessment after the strike was also severely criticised. So the the fact that they didn't get the photos, the fact that they just did the modelling, they didn't do further investigation, they didn't consider other options and i kind of wondered well what could what could they have done if the, you know if they if they had found out that this was totally broken what could they have done to fix it but actually i saw a a video around how they could have sent another ship up and then moved the astronauts to the other ship and then brought them down that way rather than risking taking the shuttle that they were in back down until they were totally sure. So there were other options that could have been done, but none of these were considered by NASA at the time. NASA did take on a lot of this feedback. They took on a lot of the recommendations that were made and they, uh, you know, learned a lot and improved a lot from this incident. Thankfully, there haven't been many space shuttles since then, but the there, would, there have been no major incidents like this one since. 
And like I said earlier, the last bit that really uh, changed was that those recommendations based on the crew survivability. When a depressurization happened, they um, added some automatic actions in. So similar to on a plane, when if depressurization happens, you can get the mass straight away. Same with the pilots, they can get their mass straight away. They With depressurization, you're incapacitated very, very quickly. So if you don't take action you know if you don't know what's happening then it can take a while for you to take those actions so by making them automatic it just meant that the crew would have a better chance of surviving that because they could get oxygen and then they could hopefully take action to stop whatever has been happening and whatever caused that depressurization so the shuttle program itself then ended a few years later um, and no no more shuttles were launched. The shuttles themselves were retired um, and you can go and see them in America. I think there's one in Florida and um, California and a couple of others. So you can go and see them. I would like to go and see one one day. But very recently, NASA have started their new lunar program, the Artemis Lunar Program. And the aim with that is to get the first man and woman on the moon again by 2024. So we're going to be expecting a few more few more shuttle takeoffs and a few more space missions happening in the near future, alongside all of the uh, other space work that's been going on by private companies alongside the work by NASA. So hopefully they've learned a lot from columbia from challenger from the issues that came up in those and the recommendations that came out and this kind of new era of space flight and new era of space exploration will be a lot safer and hopefully result in a lot less catastrophes like this one that we've been talking about so thank you very much for listening to this episode of when it goes wrong um i will add the references to my sources in the show notes. There's nothing specific I want to call out on this one. I did watch a couple of documentaries, but they were all a bit rubbish. So I will leave them in the, in the description if you are interested. But like I said earlier, if you do want a good a good documentary, then, then the Challenger ones on Netflix are great. And maybe in a future episode, we'll talk about Challenger in a bit more detail. So again, time for all of the boring things that you're used to on a podcast. So please do rate, review, subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to. Uh, it helps other people find the show, especially as it is still so new. Um, and I would love to connect with you. Love to hear your thoughts about the episode and about um, other topics that you want to talk about in future. So you can find um, all of the details for that in the show notes as well um, and where to find me. Um, and hopefully by the time this one goes up they will all be set up so ready to go so yeah if you do have any requests uh, then please do let me know <laughs>